Hello, this is John Deke, continuing with 25 Years of the Very Young Composers, which is a program of the New York Philharmonic. We're hearing The Hero's Conquest by 11-year-old Rimari Rankin. This is scene 22, from New York to Denver and back. Back in New York, during my last year of residency in Colorado, I was nervous yet excited to try out these new ideas in the Big Apple. My logical school to begin with was PS199, a neighborhood school on the west side that my own children were about to enter. It was a well-run school with parental support, but not high-end. It would become later so as the gentrification of the neighborhood skyrocketed the income level and the rents. The principal of the school, Gary Goldstein, and the school's music teacher, Ingrid Camillo, were supportive from the start, though they were curious about the method. How were you going to do this? Polly Kahn, the Philharmonic's education director, was an innovative education specialist who was also supportive of the idea, and later the brilliant Tom Cabanis would take an active role in promoting the program. I still, by the way, hadn't named it the very young composers yet. At the first few classes of PS199, I felt I was getting to pilot a true effort to establish the truth of the idea. The class met once a week after school with about 12 fourth grade children, that is about nine years old, maybe 10. One of the parents, in fact, offered to serve as an assistant in class, which was very helpful. Wow, I really needed help. Almost every week, I brought in one Philharmonic member to demonstrate his, her instrument. I tried out a primitive version of the ear fantasy, which I had mentioned back in scene 21. I got a bit hung up on trying to teach them the treble clef, but other things, I think right away I used the theme and variations idea to give the kids something to jump off from. They would all compose a short melody, the class would vote on the one they liked, and they would all compose variations upon that theme. Now that worked in most, but not all the cases, since some of the kids got jealous, despite what I would say. They would get jealous of the one whose theme was chosen, and if nothing else, I wanted to help them get a sense of teamwork instead of the usual competitiveness. In any case, we moved toward a culminating event, which, as a performer, I always insisted upon, because it gave the kids a specific goal, a public exposure, which we took pains to present as a positive rather than a scary, judgmental experience, and a public speaking experience, which I learned from the Meet the Composer program. The kids always had the chance of explaining what they meant to express in their music, and they usually enjoyed it. But if they didn't, I wouldn't press them. Our first concerts were held in the public space at the then Barnes & Noble on 66th Street, a great space. The kids and their parents would have such a fine time at these events. The competition to be able to be in the class was considerable, and how I wish we had the funding to take them all. We just needed more faculty. So, I met my very first teaching artist, of whom I had already heard by reputation, which who was suggested by Tom Cabanis. She was the now great Paula Pristini. What a stroke of luck! 
I'll never forget my first talk with her at Old John's Diner on 67th and Amsterdam. She was all excited about working with children. But her main question was, So, John, when do we edit the children's pieces? Um, we don't, Paula. A silence. Paula, it's got to be completely about them, not us. We're not teaching them composition. We're only listening to what's inside of them already. You'd be amazed at what they already have. We just have to show them a kind of toolbox, then cheerlead, scribe, and empower them to let it out. She looked aside for a moment, considering, and if you could ever imagine someone's eyes widening and catching fire right in front of you, that was the moment. <laughs> Paola became our lead teaching artist and helped motivate and organize the early power of the program. She took over the leadership at PS199 and later propelled the organization and printing of our very first guidebook. I could go on and on. Tom Cabanis also suggested I try my hand at the dual language middle school on 90th Street on the west side. Denise Halpin was the music teacher there and immensely helpful in getting it set for another after-school program. I'd worked with middle schoolers before, as I said, in Denver. Here were some of the same brilliant flights of musical fantasy and also some of the adolescent issues that I was soon to face with my own children. I'll never forget having the Philharmonic's Joe Pereira come to demonstrate percussion and play the kids' ideas. The week before, I'd played a little video, a VHS in those days, of Joe showing the basics of the instruments, and I assigned the students for the next week to write four measures, four sounds, or perhaps a xylophone melody for Joe to play. Comes the day of the class. Joseph introduced himself and points to the array of instruments that we had assembled there for him to play. So, who's first? Who would like to show Joe what they want him to play? And here we go again with the silence bit. A deep silence. Come on, guys, you were so excited for him to come here. Who's first? I know most of them had just written some amazing rhythmical sketches a few weeks before. Were they intimidated by Joe? The boys shuffled in their seats. And the girls? Come on, what's the problem? And from the back, we all overheard the giggled half-whisper, He's so handsome. So there you have it. The delights, joys, and... Interesting problems of adolescence. Love it. During the next year or two, two more newly minted teaching artists from Eric Booth's program at Juilliard presented themselves, David Wallace and Richard Carrick, later joined by Danny Felsenfeld. They all had just completed their doctorates. Wow, incredible. They also have since become prominent leaders in the field, along with Paola, international stars. How could I be so blessed? And to his credit, Tom Cabanis decided that we could expand the program to three New York City grade schools, PS165 in Upper Manhattan and PS247 in Brooklyn, later PS39. So we were cooking. 
1999, I think it was just before Paula became into the picture, the Philharmonic Management decided it was time to introduce real children's music to the full Philharmonic at a young people's concert conducted by Andre Previn, no less. Oh, you bet we worked hard on that one. We put forth the theme and variations idea, since the theme of the whole concert was to be variations. They all worked hard writing their own themes, all 14 of them. Oh, so many were excellent. It was cruel to think of choosing only one, one tune, one theme. But I stayed out of it, and the class chose Leo's theme. I can still remember it. Everyone was good-natured about it, even if they hadn't voted for it. We had some amazingly imaginative variations which vividly changed the character of the original. Ah! In fact, the kids named the whole thing the Colorful Variations. I was so proud of them. But then there was Ilana. Ilana just could not stand Leo's theme. She thought it was so inferior to her own theme. She sat with me after class one day with her arms stubbornly crossed. Ilana, do you still want to be part of this concert? Of course I do, but Leo's theme is so stupid. Well, there is a way around that, you know. How? You said we had to do variations on his dumb melody. Yeah, you were outvoted, I know, but... You could always find a way to make fun of his melody. You remember how we talked about some music being humorous, silly, even angry? Really? Yeah, it's all up to you. And if you really wanted, you could sneak your own tune in somewhere there. But don't tell anyone I told you so. Her variation turned out to be not only witty, but so well-crafted and as sarcastic as Shostakovich in its way. Good Lord, I still have trouble believing what musical complexities can reside in the mind of a nine-year-old. The concert was a riot, a nightmare, and a landmark success. Well before the concert, and to my surprise, when Previn looked at the score, he shivered and handed it right back to me. Oh, good heavens, 14 different tempo changes and quick transitions. I don't have the time or the courage to attempt this. So, you conduct it, John. I swallowed hard. <clears throat> I knew that my colleagues would not take easily to this. I had conducted them once before on the spot, remember, when Pierre Boulez was late for the rehearsal of my piece years ago. I was so embarrassed. My own piece, that was. <laughs> Oh, God, conducting is far from as easy as it might look. Anyway, I had no choice, and it was hard, all those tempo changes. And yet, somehow, it held together and had real musical potential. The kids of the class even helped decide the program order. Rather than stop after each variation, Leo and two of the others had written transitions, and we decided that all the kids would sit on the edge of the stage, and each would raise their hand as their variation was being played. It worked out beautifully, but at the rehearsal, as I had neither the skill nor the time to organize the behavior of the class, who were, after all, kids who had never done anything like this before, going to a rehearsal of the Philharmonic. But Pauli Kahn and one of the PS199 teachers, Elaine Shapiro, took them all in hand and kept them quiet during the rehearsal, especially during the Elgar Enigma variations, 
and we practiced how they would come on stage, take their bows, and so on. We all began to realize, if we hadn't already, how unprecedented this was for a Philharmonic concert. Sure, they'd had young soloists and child prodigies perform before, but this was 14 local elementary school kids presented as serious composers. The concert was a riot, a nightmare, and a landmark success. Oh, I already said that. Afterward, backstage, the kids were milling around so excited, cheers all around, I was practically collapsing in a sweat. Andre came up to me. You have a gift, he said. <laughs> 